1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Cool, awesome. Hey, we got a lot to get through in like two small verses, so why don't I pray and we'll get started. All right. Uh, Father, thank you for my friends here. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for First Timothy. Uh, Lord, I am pumped. I'm stoked. I'm excited uh, to begin a new teaching series uh, through a great little book of the Bible. And I pray, God, that as we work our way through it uh, today, as we work through it in the coming weeks and next few months, uh, God, that, that you would just have your way with us, uh, that you would make us humble to submit under its authority uh, and to see not only the truth in these words, but how they are good and how they are beautiful, how you are for our thriving, uh, our flourishing as, as people, as men, as women, as families, uh, and as a church. Uh, so God, we just ask for your grace which has already been richly provided for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, birthdays are kind of like fun wine. You guys know why? No? Anyone want to take a guess? It's not because they get better with age. Uh, no, it's because birthdays are like wine, because they're, they're great in moderation, right? Like too many are going to kill you. Uh, so that, that joke was for Danny. Uh, but but uh, look, September uh, is, this month we just finished, September is like the month of birthdays for my family, all right? Uh, it includes my daughter, it includes my son Haddon. Uh, and if you know my son, if you know Haddon, two of his favorite things are Legos and puzzles. He's a big builder, right? He likes to put things together, he likes to craft, he likes to build things, and so naturally he got a bunch of Legos and puzzles for his birthday. And that's why over the last couple weeks, uh, I keep finding like instructions and picture boxes for puzzles like on prominent display around our house, like on the dining table, around the fireplace and things like that. And they're, they're all over and he keeps them up in prominent places. Why? Because he needs them right? Like he wants to put these pictures together. He wants to build these Legos and he needs the picture. He needs the manual in order to, in order to, to do it right, to build it right. And if you're going to build something and build it right, then it helps to have some picture of what you're supposed to build, right? Uh, maybe a blueprint as they're called. And so blueprints reason they're helpful is because they tell you how, how to build something. Uh, they tell you uh, how to form a solid foundation. Uh, if you're in our home groups this season, uh, you know that's a, a passage that we're studying right now, the parable of, of building a house either on, on shaky ground or on a solid foundation, and blueprints help you do that properly. They show you what the end product is supposed to look like. They're also helpful for that reason. And without a blueprint, Without any kind of master plan or blueprint, then you won't know if you're making mistakes along the way, right? The blueprints kind of help keep you on track. And so just for fun for, and to further illustrate this, I, I found some worthy sort of building fails on the internet, right? Uh, maybe looking at, at, at blueprints could have helped these builders, right? So we've got this first picture, right? Um, I love this because the best part about this whole thing, like you've got these, these diagonal columns going like right into the middle of the walkway. The best part is that this is a design school, 
all right? So this is a hallway uh, on the upper floor of a design school. Or what about this next one, all right? Love this one, right? With a blueprint, maybe they would have saved themselves the embarrassment of basically building a giant toilet, right? Uh, next one. Uh, good news is no, one, no one's going to steal this guy's car, right? Uh, not even he can take it out for a spin. And the next one, this is the last one. Uh, this is a McDonald's. I have no idea where this is, but look at that column. Like, what, what, what point does that column serve with that gap at the top, right? Uh, it's like the backup column, right? If everything else gives away, then it falls on there. Uh, the moral of the story is that blueprints, they matter, right? They're helpful. And when you need to know how to build something, then blueprints are a great place for you to start. And so that brings us to this new series that we're going to be in over the next few months uh, through this great little book called First Timothy. First Timothy, it's a blueprints kind of book. It's a blueprints kind of book because it contains God's plans for the church. Not exhaustively, like it doesn't contain everything there is to know about the church, but it does include a lot of sort of the heartbeat and the nature of what a healthy church looks like. It shows us what a healthy gospel-shaped and gospel-formed church looks like. The book is actually written uh, from a pastor, from an older seasoned pastor uh, by the name of Paul, uh, to a young and weary pastor by the name of Timothy. That's where we get the name of the book from. It's his first letter in the scriptures, included in the scriptures, that he has written to Timothy. And Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him in the good work of building a church that brings glory to Christ and is an outpost of the kingdom, just slinging hope to people all around them. And so it's a foundational book. It's a formative book. It's been especially formative to me as, as a pastor. I've been doing this over the last few years where I, I reread and restudy this book a few times each year because it contains so many foundational truths about the nature of a healthy church. And so like, I'm really pumped. I'm stoked that we get to sort of like walk through this and study this book together in the coming months. Uh, it's going to take us uh, into like early spring 2023. Uh, of course, we're going to take a break uh, around Christmas time for our Advent series uh, and then talk about a, a few sort of vision and values components uh, that we take from the scriptures in January. It's like our normal rhythm that we do at the beginning of every year, sort of revisit who we are as a church. Um, but the series, First Timothy, we're going to be in this book into the end of the year and into early 2023. But this book wasn't just written from Paul to Timothy. It was also meant to be read out loud by Timothy. It was meant to be read out loud by Timothy to the whole church. And we actually see that in a few places, like Paul directly addresses this, the church in his letter to Timothy um, because of the, just the way he, he encourages the whole church body to be just shaped and formed by the truth and grace of the gospel. By the way, those two words, truth and grace, those are two things that I think the world sorely needs right now. We're just not celebrating in our culture today. And what better community to bring truth? What better community to bring capital T truth and capital G grace to the culture around us than the church of the true and living God of the gospel? 
And so look, quickly as a way of preface, uh, uh, I want to I talk about why this series will be helpful for a whole host of people. You guys might fall into these categories. You might know somebody who's not here uh, that could fall into these categories. And so maybe this will put a rock in your shoe and be like, man, I want to get that person over here, this family member, this friend of mine, this neighbor of mine, so that they can, they can walk through and learn with us together. And so look, if you're a believer... A follower of Jesus, which I think many of you are, you'll see that this is a very relevant book for us to be going through right now. Uh, you'll see how your identity is not just in Christ, but is in a community, a church, the household of God. You belong to a family called the church. And if you're a covenant member here, that means that you've gone through our membership process, or maybe you're in the process of becoming a member. You'll learn sort of some hot tips from, from one of the apostles that have been, hand, have, have been handpicked by Jesus, which is Paul, uh, on what being committed uh, to a local church looks like. If you're a skeptic or a seeker, or perhaps you know a skeptic or a seeker who's uh, maybe thought about coming to church but hasn't, hasn't quite come around yet, um, someone who's curious about the Christian faith but isn't, isn't quite sure about church or church people, I think what we'll learn is that um, the contents of this book will give someone in that sort of category as they're exploring Christianity, uh, sort of some uh, like uh, intellectual uh, integrity uh, to explore what Christ and the church is really all about, right? Blueprints for the household of God. Maybe you or someone you know is what we might call like the religious, like the overly religious but not relational person, right? Like they, they do all the religious things, but they don't actually have sort of like a, this relationship with God. Uh, they're not very relational with others. Uh, and what you, what you need is an elevated view of the church, a more wholehearted view uh, that, that church is more than just a, a Sunday event or some weekly activities, uh, but that it, it, it'll give you a renewed outlook on what it is that we're doing here. Why do we do this? If you're uh, maybe like a floater or sort of like a church hopper, right? Uh, which is, I know not many of you guys, right? Like, but it's popular in our culture right now, right? Uh, to be a church hopper. You get all the benefits of the church, but none of the commitment. And you'll see that you need a church from the words of First Timothy. You need a church, and the church needs you. The church needs you, and we hope you find a family of faith in, in, in its words and, and a mission and legacy uh, to live for here. For those of us who are parents, I think this, this book of 1 Timothy will better equip us to teach our kids on how to have a compelling vision of the community of Christ. And for those of us who've had a bad experience with a local church, I know that some of us in this room, because I personally, I know some of your stories. I know some of you know that that's, that's, that's my story too, right? If you've had a bad experience with a local church, like many of us had in the past, um, first of all, uh, we just want to say, like, we're, we're sorry that that happened. We're sorry for any of the hurt and for the harm uh, that you've endured. Uh, my hope and prayer is that uh, through this series, you'll get a, a better and clearer grasp of how the church is supposed to be, right? How we're supposed to treat one another, how churches are supposed to be led to help you and your family thrive in growing in grace. That's what a church is all about. Now, if you're a man, 
uh, let me this is just be sort of a little, little soapbox moment for me, all right? Uh, and this is just fresh on my mind because uh, our home group was actually talking about this earlier this week as we were going through one of the parables we're studying. And so uh, I, I don't know, I just feel like I, I want to address this. Um, did you guys know that the least likely uh, demographic to ch- attend a worship service uh, is men? particularly men between the ages of 18 and 35. And what's interesting about the statistics, like how they, how they gathered those numbers, is that most of the guys that they, they interviewed and asked uh, uh, in the survey were, were guys who would say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, they just don't value the church. I think part of that is the church in America's problem, uh, how, how churches tend to, have tended to cater to, to women and children more with the different programs and events. But I think a bigger reason and part of that is that um, men are, are lazy, and they're passive, and they're selfish, and they're proud. I was just reading two articles this week. They were like, a lot of people were sharing them on social media. Maybe you read one of them this week. But I was talking about like this, this manhood epidemic. You guys see any of these? Like how there's a man epidemic, that men are increasingly depressed, mental health issues. They're increasingly checking out. They're increasingly not leading well in any meaningful way in the home. You know what that tells us? That tells us that men need the church. And the church needs good men. And look, this letter, 1 Timothy, it's written by a man to another man. It's written by a man who worked hard, a man who used to be a toxic version of manhood and masculinity. He used to beat up others. He used to imprison Christians. But then he got beaten up after he became a follower of Jesus. And now, as he's writing this, he's got this new purpose, this new mission and legacy to live for. He's got the future in mind. And he's writing to pass on this vision, this this future to Timothy, a man that he's taken under his wing. And look, men... The women in our community, the women in this church, they need men like that. We need to be those kinds of men, and we often fall short. I often fall short. The children here in our church community, we need men like that. And so I want you, if you're a man, to come with an open mind and a tender heart, and let's just make some dents in our war against the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of God. Amen? And so with that, uh, my guess is that as we got through those lists, that you're thinking like, man, I, I feel like I'm in one or maybe more of these categories. Uh, and so you're ready, right? You're ready to get into the book. You're ready to study the book. And so let me first uh, start us off. We're just going to go through two verses this afternoon, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to answer the question, why should we care about 1 Timothy? Why should you and I care about 1 Timothy at all? Why do we need it? Number one is because we need the authority of 1 Timothy. We need the authority of 1 Timothy. My wife and I, we took our oldest kids to Disneyland uh, this last week for their birthdays. And you know how, like at Disneyland, they blast out the instructions, like as you're getting to, uh, to the front of the line, they blast out the instructions on the overhead speakers, and they say things like, like, please keep your children supervised at all times, right? Things like that. Or please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle at all times, right? Like, like that, that kind of verbiage. Uh, we usually ignore that, right? 
We usually ignore that because uh, we've heard it, some form of it, like so many different times. But if they changed it up, if they ever like changed that up on us, then like your ears would suddenly perk up. You'd notice, right? You'd be like, wait, what was that again? Right? Like, like if they said, feel free to let your child just do like whatever they want, right? Like let them, let them jump out. If they want to grab a pirate's hat, like just go for it, right? Our gift to you, right? If they said something like that, you'd be like, wait, what did they just say? And that's, that's kind of what happens here at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Paul, he is writing to Timothy. He's written most of the New Testament. And we see in his letter to 1 Timothy, he sort of changes up his greeting here in the first couple verses. He doesn't just say like, hey, look, it's Paul, greetings, what's up, salutations, right? It's not this generic greeting. He adds some unique elements to his greeting here, like he does in a few of his other letters. And look, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we looked at last week, if you remember, Paul, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, and we know that it is, then we know that these words, they matter. They're not there by accident. These words that he uses in the first couple of verses, they, they, they sort of like reveal his hand, right? They reveal his hand. They prepare you for what he's going to be dealing out later on in the letter, all right? And so let's look at verse number one, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, and so what we see right here in verse number one is that Paul himself was under authority, right? Paul the apostle, he himself was under authority. He is, the verse says, an apostle. Now, to be an apostle, uh, Acts 1 tells us that you, you had to be present during Jesus's earthly ministry from the time that he was baptized by John to the time of his resurrection and his ascension, right? An apostle, that word apostle means one who is sent, a sent one, all right? A missionary who is specifically sent by Jesus to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, and look, a lot of those original 12 dudes, the 12 apostles, uh, they, they were used by God the Holy Spirit to pen the scriptures. Like literally the entire New Testament is written by the apostles of Jesus Christ. They are his special representatives of the sovereign king of the universe. Now, unlike the other apostles, Paul, he actually didn't roll with Jesus during his earthly ministry, nor was he there at Jesus' resurrection and ascension. If you're familiar with the story of Paul, a little bit of background work, so bear with me, okay? Uh, what you see is that Paul, what made him an apostle was this very special and unique encounter that he had with the risen Jesus. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. We don't have enough time to turn there. But basically, what we read is that this guy, he was an early persecutor of Christians, right? He was, he was on hire, contracted by the Roman government, right? He was one of the uh, Jewish religious elites uh, that's, that him and his people, they saw Christianity as a threat. And so the government had hired him and said, hey, you see this Christian movement as a threat. We see it as a threat. You're posted amongst all these Christians. 
We want to hire you to find them and to throw them in prison. I don't care if you take women away from their children and from their families. We don't care if uh, men get stoned and buried. We don't care if children end up in prison, right? Like, like that was Paul's job, a persecutor of the early Christians. But then, then he meets Jesus, and everything changes. And as I'm saying that, I know that for many of you, you're thinking right now, that's my story, right? You might not have been like murdering and imprisoning Christians, but you came from this place where you hated God and you hated his people. You wanted nothing to do with them. And then all of a sudden you find yourself loving and knowing and worshiping Jesus as as the risen king. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He, Jesus appears to him, and then Jesus gives him a special ministry to be the last of the apostles and to be the sole apostle to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, to take that gospel to the Gentiles, which is just a word for those who were not Jews. And remember, Paul was like, a religious elitist Jew who saw Christians as a threat, and all of a sudden, he's sent by Jesus to be the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. All the people that Jews at the time uh, thought were like untouchable and far away from God, like without hope. So if you're not a Jew this afternoon, I don't know if any of us are, but if, uh, I, I'm not, right? You, you probably guess that, right? But if you're, if you're like me, you're not a Jew, like Paul is your apostle, apostle to the Gentiles. So this clearly wasn't like a, a career fair decision for him, right? Like he didn't, he didn't decide to go down this route because no one would choose that. Apostles had a grueling job. The government was trying to shut them down. All the original apostles were martyred for the faith, killed, imprisoned, murdered. Read how Paul describes one of his missionary journeys after coming to Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 to 28, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, that was his former people, right? I received at the hands of them 40 lashes, less one, Lashes, whips on, the, on his back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was, I was stoned, right? That's not like Pacific Northwest stone. That's like hurt badly stone, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, by the way, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me or on me, on of my anxiety for all the churches. And, and this is all the, the hardship that he went through. Paul's a good pastor and he, he, he actually loses sleep at night over the spiritual concern and health that for the people that he's led to Christ. So then why would anyone do it, <laughs> right? Like, why would anyone be an apostle? It's because God called him. Jesus chose him, commissioned him. 
This guy, Paul, was not likely to ever be an apostle. He was a killer of Christians. Then he becomes a follower of Jesus. Everything changed, and now he is sent out into the world as an apostle and a church planter. He wasn't elected or chosen by other men. He was divinely appointed by the risen and ruling Lord. Even the writing, in the writing of this letter, he says he does it by the command of God our Savior. Paul is saying to Timothy, look, these words that I'm writing to you right now, that are coming from my pen to you, from my heart to yours, they're coming because I'm under the command of God to do so. And look, man, the apostles, they were not perfect men, Right? Paul admits that himself many times in his letters. The apostles were fallible men, but they were used by an infallible God to write words that were inspired by God. And so the reason that Timothy and his church and everyone since, including us today, needs to humbly come under the authority of this letter is because it was breathed out by God. We come under the authority of it just like Paul was under authority. That leads us to our next subpoint: is that not only was Paul himself under authority, but we're under authority. We are under authority. When Paul writes that he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, that means it's like, that means that when we read this letter of 1 Timothy, it's like we're sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing words from his very mouth. You need to understand that as we're working through this in the next few months. These words are from Jesus to you. You can't separate Paul from Jesus, as many, many try to do today, because some of the stuff that Paul says is unpopular in our cultural moment. But I want you to think about it like a political ambassador, the way that those work. Like if an ambassador approaches the sovereign of another nation with, with some terms, right? And, and says, uh, like, hey, here, here are the terms. Uh, uh, will you accept them or not? Like, it's as good as if those terms were coming from the one that the ambassador represents. And so if you were to reject the terms of the ambassador, it's as if you were rejecting the state head that that ambassador represents, you see, when we reject the teachings of 1 Timothy, it's as though we are rejecting the authority of Jesus in our lives. When we sit under the scriptures, when we sit under the teaching of 1 Timothy, we are sitting under God's very breath, under his word. Look, the fact that the Bible is inspired and without error is not only a doctrine that we need to affirm and confess with our mouths, it is a firm foundation for us to stand on in a culture and in a world that suppresses and, and opposes the truths of God. Look, when everything around us seems to be shaky and falling away and fading away, we need this. We need God's authority. We need to hear God's word and submit to it, knowing that what he says is good and true and right, that it's beautiful, that it's for our thriving as a people, that it's for our flourishing and for our future. You know what the thing about authority is? The thing about authority probably notice this, is that we don't like it. 
we don't like authority, right? From the very beginning of human history, mankind has been allergic to authority. We have rejected authority, even good authority, like we see in the garden with our very first parents. But the thing is, you might say, I don't like authority, but every single one of us lives under authority. The most hard-hearted, thick-skulled anarchist lives under authority. For some, that authority is our tradition, our upbringing that we came from, right? Which again, tradition is not exactly bad. It can be often a good thing, but it can't supersede the word of God. For others, our authority is whatever cultural take is hot at the moment or popular at the moment. And look, that one, that's powerful because of how subtle it is. If you're not paying attention, you won't even realize that you're just following the cultural flow. This is why Christians need the authority of the scriptures. You can find yourself following something that God calls bad simply because the culture calls it good. This is what happened with the transatlantic slave trade. Or you might live under the authority of your own subjective, personal feelings. Hey, if it feels good, it's got to be good. I can understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. I do that all the time, right? It often gets me in trouble, right? Because I often sin when I do, right? I mean, ask my kids. I often lash out in anger and impatience when I do. You know, uh, everyone's talking about Jeffrey Dahmer recently because of uh, that new Netflix series with Evan Peters. Uh, and I was reading this, this old interview of him where he, he described why he did what he did. Jeffrey Dahmer, the uh, renowned serial killer, he said that he did it simply because he was completely swept along by his feelings. That's how he described it. He was completely slept along by his compulsion to kill. In the interview, he said, quote, it was an incessant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever cost. Someone good-looking, someone really nice-looking. It just filled my thoughts all day long, and he wanted to possess them in the fullest sense that he could. That's obviously an extreme illustration. But I think if we're honest, we know we deal with that impulse all the time. All the time. Where we're completely swept along by our compulsions and our feelings. You see, there are many authorities that we unknowingly submit to. But to become a Christian is to submit to the authority of the triune God. It's saying... Look, I might not feel like doing this. It might make me unpopular in in the whims of the culture. It might contradict how I was raised. But God, I see your word as authority. I know your word has authority. And so I'll gladly submit to your word because you're Lord. And you love me. I know that you, you want what's best for me. You died for me. And let me ask you, what king is worth submitting to? How many kings love you the way that Jesus has? 
How many kings will move heaven and earth for your ultimate and truest good? How many kings have died for you? How many kings have risen from the dead to give you the same benefits? You see, when a Christian submits to the authority of God's word, that is the most liberating and it's actually the most freeing thing because it no longer matters what other people think about you. It no matters which way the culture is swaying. It only matters what God says. The eternal God. More than feelings, more than culture, more than tradition, more than our inner compulsions and inner workings, we need the authority in God's word. It's where we say, God, like what, what you say about my life, what you say about the church, what you say about being part of your people, what you say about marriage, about parenting, about relationships, about finances. God, what you say about all those things, I know it is for my ultimate good. And listen, man, like that is the thing about the word of God that a lot of skeptics have a hard time understanding and wrestling with. And some fundamentalist Christians Overly zealous religious types have a hard time with this too. You see, the thing about the word of God is not just that it's true. If it was just that it was true, if that's all that we believed in it, then all that would matter is that we are right and they are wrong. But it's not just that the word of God is true. It's also good. It's also beautiful. Jesus describes it, the, the scriptures describe it actually in the Torah, in the Old Testament, as it's, it's like bread for our hunger. It's like water for the thirst of our souls. It's not that just that the word is true, but it is also good. It is also beautiful. It is for our flourishing and our thriving to be the truest self that you could possibly be in Christ. Not only do we need the authority of 1 Timothy, but number two, we need the church that 1 Timothy envisions. We need the church 1 Timothy envisions. Paul, remember, he's an apostle. And Timothy, who he's writing to, is a pastor of a church. Timothy and Paul, they helped start the church in Ephesus. Timothy started the church in Ephesus. We read about that in Acts 20. Most people believe that this letter that Paul is writing to 1 Timothy, a lot of scholars will say that, that the church that Timothy is pastoring at the time is still that church in Ephesus. And here we have Paul checking in on Timothy, reminding him what the church is for and how she should be shaped and formed. That's the purpose of this letter. Look at the beginning of verse 2 when it, Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now in those words, true child in the faith, we see something beautiful about the nature of the church. Remember, this letter is meant to be read to the whole church. Later in the letter, we actually see that he wants the whole church to be addressed and included in its reading. Look, apostles, that's what they did. They wrote letters to churches. Most of the New Testament that we have in our Bibles are letters to, from apostles to churches. Do you know what that tells us? That tells us that these churches, they mattered. The church 
matters. You see, in the first century, if you wanted to hear from God, if you wanted uh, to hear the word of God, then you went to a church and you heard one of these letters being read. In the very middle of 1 Timothy, we actually state the uh, primary purpose, the main idea behind the whole letter. It's actually not here in chapter 1, but in the very middle of the letter, Paul just explicitly says to Timothy why he's writing. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, hey, I hope to come to you soon. And just so you know, that that word uh, you in the original Greek, it's not just talking to Timothy, singular. It's a plural you. And so he's talking to the church. He says to them in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He calls the church the church of the living God. Man, we need a higher view of the church. Like, do you view the church? Do you view this community as a church of the living God? We need that sort of perspective. It's the church of the living God. That means that there's vitality to it. There's life to it because God is alive. He's not missing He's not dead. He's not gone. He's alive and well. And this is his church. And so therefore, these people, this church, should be alive and well. There's a spiritual vitality there. There's life when we turn from our idols and turn to Jesus. The church is full of people who have transformed from death to life and sit under the living word. That's what our baptism signifies. We're dead to our old ways, to our old self, and we've risen from the waters. We've risen from the grave with Jesus to walk in new life. It's also, Paul says, the household of God. Household is a great word because it reminds us that this church is a family. How do we tend to view the church? How is it that we tend to view one another? Is it a club, a group that we belong to? We've got some club benefits that come along with that. Is it a crowd, an audience, where we just kind of gather as consumers to be entertained? To say, yeah, I went there, I did the thing. Is this, is it, is it a museum? Maybe you see it as a museum, right? Where it's a, it's a place for you to kind of show off like how, how awesome you look, right? Put things in, on display, right? Or do you see it as a family? Now, we're saying family in the truest sense of the word. Family that goes deeper than the family you were born into. This is the family you were born again into. Look at the verbiage that Paul uses in the beginning of 1 Timothy 5. When he tells the church, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, in all purity. It's family language. You see, our identity in Christ is not just vertical, but also horizontal. 
in Jesus, the Bible says we've been adopted in Christ. And so those who have also been adopted are our brothers and sisters. This is a family. Paul also describes the church as a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, what does that tell us? This kind of archaic language, right? A pillar and buttress of truth. What does that tell us? It tells us that the church is simply where you find the truth of God. They're the protectors of truth. They're the slingers of truth. They're the tellers of truth. The rehearsers of truth. As the church takes the Bible and speaks it to one another, we are built up in the truth. At both the beginning of 1 Timothy, which we'll see next week, and also at the end of the book, we find and see a calling for the church to be protectors of God's truth. See, the church matters for many reasons, and one of those is that we proclaim and hold fast to God's truth. We need the community that 1 Timothy envisions. This is why I mean, we're simply made for it, right? Like, we're made for authentic community. Like, this is why that um, people on their, on their deathbed, like, no one's, no one's looking for their stuff when they're about to die, right? What do they want? They want people. They want their loved ones, their friends, their, their family. They want to be surrounded by people. We were made for relationship, not for reputation, which most of us find ourselves in that rat race chasing after again and again and again. But that's not what we're ultimately made for. We're made for relationship with God and others. And God designed the church. He designed the church to meet our deepest, our truest, our most significant relational needs. But we often reject it. The troubling thing about that, as we'll see in 1 Timothy, is that Satan, he often preys on isolated people. If you've ever, I've, I've mentioned this Instagram profile a few times, but nature is metal, right? If you've ever like seen that or followed that, um, like you just see some crazy stuff that happens to, to animals uh, that are normally like in a herd, but when one of them gets sort of like sectioned off, when the predators come in and they get a single prey away from the herd, Man, it gets messy, and it gets messy fast. You see, some of us, we don't link with the church because of our idealistic preferences on, on who it is that we like to hang out with. But that kind of idealism will kill Christian community. We need each other's awkwardness, right? We need each other's messiness. We need each other's rough edges. We need each other's wounds and past traumas. And when we bring those together in this hodgepodge of a community into a true community of grace, God uses us in each other's lives to smooth out those rough edges, to bring healing, to make us humble, to make us more like Christ. And if we stay in our, in our, in our cliques, that's not, that's not real community. If the group that you like to hang out with all the time can be explained by social categories, then it's not biblical community. 
Biblical community is when people who would normally never hang out with each other, like would, would normally be like enemies against each other, are joined together as family and love one another because of what Jesus has done. Because the most important thing about me and the most important thing about you and the most important thing about the person over there is that we were once sinners, but now we've been saved by grace, made new, risen to new life in Jesus. That is the most important thing about you if you're a follower of Jesus. It has nothing to do with how much money you make, color of your skin, who you voted for in the last election, who you'll vote for in the next election. It doesn't matter your social class, your ethnicity, your family background or ancestry. All of those become moot points when it comes to the fact of your biggest problem, that you were a sinner, an enemy of God, but you've been reconciled with him now in Jesus. We are a jacked up community of grace. Let's never pretend that we're anything otherwise. We've got diverse, different groups of people, even in our small, newish church community. I love the way that Diedrich Bonhoeffer um, derives this point home. Bonhoeffer was uh, a pastor and a spy who helped conspire to bring Hitler down in Germany's, uh, in World War II Germany. And uh, he wrote this book on Christian community while he was uh, imprisoned. And he said uh, in that book, he says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. It's a subtle danger, our idealistic preferences. But look, we see the gospel best when it's lived out in a community of truth and grace in relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, man, I've seen in the most incredible, like heartwarming, uh, tear-producing ways, like I've seen the way that this has been lived out in our small church community already and the way that you guys have rejoiced with one another and celebrated with one another uh, in, in great seasons of happiness and celebration, but also in how you've wept with one another through intense and heartbreaking tragedies, the way that you've surrounded and prayed for one another, the way that you've encouraged one another, the way that people have been um, fought for and forgiven and shown grace for making the same mistakes over and over again. The way that people who find themselves in a pit, who've relapsed again for another time, like have been pulled up and out and set their feet on solid ground. I've seen the way that you guys have brought meals to one another, given funds to one another, helped each other pay their bills, babysit for one another, even paying rent when a tragedy hits a family. That's the household of God. That's Christian community. Look, 1 Timothy is a book for the whole church. It speaks of the church's heart for one another. It speaks of the church's conduct. It speaks of the church's worship, of the church's love, of the church's leaders. 
we need the church that First Timothy envisions. And lastly, number three, we just need the hope of the gospel. We need the hope of the gospel, which is dripping on every page, saturating every chapter and, and, and passage of scripture all throughout the letter. We see this just soaking up the, the words in, in verses one and two. Let's read the passage again uh, from the beginning. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now look, if we move too fast through those two verses, you're going to miss how much hope and how much gospel is packed into those two verses. It's a hope that isn't based on events. It's not a hope that's based on circumstances. But this is a hope that is based on the very character of God, on his very nature, and on the good news of all that he's done for us in Jesus. Look at that phrase in verse 1. He says, he refers to God, our Savior. God, our Savior. You see, first, there's good news in knowing that God is our Savior. I mean, you can't take that phrase for granted. Sit with it. God is our Savior. He's God. God. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing, yet he's given us everything. See, deep down, we are all unworthy sinners, right? doesn't matter how clean and put together you look on the outside. If you're honest with yourself, you know that deep down, you're jacked up just like I am. We're all cosmic rebels uh, rebelling against the God of the universe. But God, in his kindness, he could not leave us there. He could have, but he didn't. Because we're rebels, because we're sinners, he could destroy us at any given moment, and he would be good and just and right to do so because he is holy and perfect. And we are so far from that. But because he's also love, he saves us. He saves us. God is the one who has saved us from our sin. He's the one who saved us from ourselves. The Bible tells us that God in eternity past, he looked down at your life and he set his heart on you, elected you before the foundation of the world to the point that he sent his son to absorb his righteous wrath on your behalf. The wrath of your sin, Jesus absorbed unto himself. Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He rose in victory over sin and death for you so that you could be saved by grace through faith in him. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 says, verse 3 and 4 says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. There's that phrase again. 
He's the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want you to marvel at the heart of God here. Our God is a saving God. He desires to save you from your sins. Don't miss how wonderful that is. All you have to do, all you have to do is turn to him and say, I'm tired of living for myself. I want to live for Jesus. Paul also says, Christ Jesus, our hope, Christ Jesus is our hope. See, that hope of salvation is given to us through Jesus. He's the one who was sent to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross. See, the Christians of the first century, they were starving for hope. It was already hard to live in the ancient Near East as it is, as it already was. It was even much harder to live as a Christian under persecution. Maybe, maybe you're in a season of life right now where you're starving for hope. You're like, man, I could use some hope. The greatest need that you have, the greatest hope that you didn't even know you needed is found in Jesus. He came for sinners like me. This is mind-boggling. He came for sinners like you. All who call upon his name now as Lord and Savior will have everlasting hope. And Paul does not want Timothy or his church to miss this. He reminds them from the beginning, from the very beginning of the letter. He says, look, I know you guys are going through hard stuff. I know you're going through struggles. I know life is hard. I know ministry is hard. I know church can be hard, but never forget, you always have hope in Christ. He's our only hope. And Paul says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I won't belabor this point because we've already gone over it, but it's just worth mentioning that Paul and Timothy, they had very little in common before Jesus changed them both. But now they're family. Now they're family in the deepest sense of that word. And their relationship, you'll find out if you read the scriptures, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find out their relationship is going to carry on for years and years. Second Timothy, which we're not going to go into this year, but Second Timothy is Paul's parting letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. And in that letter, Timothy is burning out in ministry. He's on the verge of quitting, and Paul tells him to press on in faithfulness. See, the gospel unites us together. It makes us for one another. It causes us to encourage one another and spur one another on. It gives us a true family, a forever family. It brings us together and his grace, mercy, and peace flow in and around all that we do. It saturates our community together. And lastly, his closing words, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Those words, grace, mercy, Peace. And we can, we can spend a thousand lifetimes over exploring the riches found in those words. Paul wants the church, when they gather, to think about how magnificent our God is. Let us think about the riches that we have in him, the grace that is undeserved, the mercy and pardon that we receive the peace that endures through trials and suffering, 
And who does this grace, mercy, and peace come from? It comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God, again, he's, he, he's God. He's the universal sovereign king ruling over all creation. The one who made everything that there is. The one who holds creation together by the sheer volition of his will with a single thought. But he's also, as this great God, this sovereign king, this, this ruler of all rulers, this king of kings, he's also our Abba Father. He's a father. A perfect father. The father that even the best of our earthly fathers could not even hold a candle to. And in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who defeated the grave is the Lord that we submit to. And so we surrender our whole selves to him in every area of our lives. We study his word. Whatever he says, we do. We remember his gospel and we rest in him. All we are in Jesus, we are together as his church. Let the gospel form our church. That's what this letter is about. Let God's grace, mercy, and peace form and shape our church. First Timothy is about how the gospel forms who we are, how we live together, and what we do as his people. We need this letter. It is the blueprint of the household of God, the basis of how we live for the glory of God, the growth of one another, and the good of our neighbors and the everyday stuff of life. I'm stoked and I'm pumped to study it with you guys over the next few months. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.